This episode of Asians Represent is brought to you by our amazing supporters at patreon.com slash aznsrepresent and the OneShot Podcast Network. Join our Discord community by heading to aznsrepresent.com. A little bit of a content warning before the start of this episode. Emma and I are going to be talking about Asian horror stories. So likely bring up themes of politics, uh, body horror, death, potential like suicide, murder, that sort of stuff. Uh, So this is going to be a, a heavy episode. So especially when we're dealing with Asian ghosts, (laughs) especially when we're talking about Asian ghosts. So, um, Content warning for for anyone who is you know watching this later or listening to the audio. Um, I forgot to make a content warning command on Twitch, but um, we'll be sure to you know put, I'll 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 write it out periodically and copy and paste it uh, yeah. over and over again. Uh, now that said, um, why don't we get started, Emma? This is an episode where. We're going to be talking about horror, uh, specifically Asian horror stories from our own cultures. We're not just going to talk about Pan-Asia. We're going to focus on like China and Japan and how they can influence our audience's stories and how they may have already influenced what we do, whether it be in the design work we're doing, the writing work we're doing, uh, or even our home games. Mm. Because I am going to reveal something about our home game, a plot thread that I decided not to go down, actually, but I had stuck in our game real early. Mm. Um, And I want to talk about that today. Um, But before we dive into that, I think it's going to be very important for us to kind of set a foundation, kind of set a foundation of what we are referring to when we say horror. So for me, and I, I was giving this a lot of thought today, it's like, well, what is horror? And I kind of came to the conclusion also after doing some research that horror isn't a single genre. Horror consists of multiple genres that essentially incorporate a unique sort of suite of elements to physically and psychologically shock and affect audiences. And, you know, they try to, you know, revolt an audience by really like pushing boundaries and exploiting human emotion. And when I think of sort of Asian horror, I think of a genre that is used to sort of examine um, or criticize social and political norms uh, Mm -hmm. in ways that are really easy to understand. Um, In many ways, horror as multiple genres are just like a broad and extreme form of self-expression. From the context of like China, horror as a genre is really poorly defined because horror as as a genre that we're talking about is very much something that's borrowed from the West. And the market in contemporary China is extremely limited. A lot of research indicates that the horror genre peaked in China in 2014. Uh, there's a film called the uh, The House That Never Dies, and it's considered mm. sort of like commercially the peak of Chinese horror films. 
But even that pales in comparison to other films like Wolf Warrior 2. Wolf Warrior 2 made like close to 6 billion yuan. And the house that the house that never dies made like 400 million yuan. So like the, the differences between them, even if you account for inflation, astronomical. Uh, but the answer to that is, is pretty straightforward. And that like Wolf Warrior 2 is a movie about uh, Chinese nationalism. It's a very patriotic film. It was endorsed by, um, you know, the, um, the Communist Party of China. It was heavily marketed. Whereas given the fact that horror itself is political and social criticism, in many ways, especially in Asian media, uh, horror doesn't really align with the Communist Party's values and agenda. So they don't receive really any sort of additional statewide funding. They don't receive any marketing. And most horror productions function at a loss. And horror in China, especially like contemporary China, I say, is really a practice of doing art for art's sake and not for financial gain, uh, which I found very interesting because when I think about horror movies in China, there really aren't any recent ones. Mm. Uh, but then when you compare it to like Japan or Korea within that sort of East Asian sort of sphere, there are way more like in, in those neighboring yeah. countries. I, I found it very interesting. Coming out of Taiwan too. Yeah. Uh, but from like mainland China, nothing. No. And like traditionally, there was a lot of horror work coming out of Hong Kong. Yeah. But obviously now things are you know, a, a little bit different. Um, but that's that's sort of my take on horror. Horror is very much an examination of social and political like extremes. They like make you feel uneasy. Uh, horror yeah. doesn't have to be all jump scares. Sometimes it is. Sometimes it's me playing Resident Evil and being like, I'm going to fucking die. Um, <laughs> or sometimes it's me watching something and feeling really uneasy and having to go check my locks or something like that. Yeah. And it also really depends on the audience too, because there are certain things that terrify folks that other people find extremely fascinating. Mm. Uh, movies like arachnophobia i love the movie arachnophobia but well, i don't really see it as it's not really truly horrific to me but to others it's just a movie about spiders <laughs> it's just other, yeah for me it's like oh it's a movie about spiders and did you know this is how they made it but to others this is like beyond what they can even yeah handle um so horror is very much a genre that cannot be defined <laughs> by a no. set of tropes and that's the thing, like, when I agreed to do this, like, a year ago, I was like, I'm gonna have to specify that I only, like, I only really consume specific types of horror, because I, I'm not really a huge fan of, like, the gratuitous gore, right? Tor torture, or even body horror, like, it doesn't get me, but it's not my go-to thing. I'm all about like paranormal, supernatural. If there's ghosts and demons, I'm there. That kind <laughs> <Nice>. of stuff. <laughs> so yeah. So so many different types. And right. um we've talked about and we're planning to talk about now like cosmic horror. Because mm -hmm. in Japan, cosmic horror and that type of 
dread and foreboding based horror is really popular. Yeah. I'm actually really glad you brought that up because yeah. one thing that's just so interesting about cosmic horror, particularly Call of Cthulhu, is that it is the most popular TTRPG in Japan. And I found out about that when I was talking to um, our, our friend Mark and um, my who I who I talk about on the podcast as like my whitest friend. Um, <laughs> I love Mark so much. Um, no, when I was talking to Mark and our, our Mark and I, our friend Joe De Simone, uh, shout out to Joe um, on Twitter. Joe is iHeartFargo. Um, we were talking about Delta Green because we were all in a Delta Green game together. And uh, I was telling Joe that I was interested in doing um, an episode of Asians Represent about, you know, horror. And he was like, Daniel, do you know what the most popular, like, TTRPG in Japan is? And I thought it was going to be similar to, like, China, where, mm-hmm. like, Fate and Pathfinder are actually more popular in terms of, like, market share than D&D. Yeah. But D&D's trying real hard D&D's now D&D's trying real hard in Japan. Um <laughs> And we could we'll talk see. about we could talk about that too, but Joe basically said, "No, it's Call of Cthulhu and Delta Green," and I was like, "What? Like yeah. how? Like?" And Joe and basically told me that it just makes sense. You know how in the West, like, oh, tabletop RPGs is synonymous with D anD D. In Japan, yeah. tabletop RPGs are synonymous table with yeah, tabletop. We could talk about that too. Tabletop um, games, yeah. <laughs> it, it, it's synonymous with Call of Cthulhu in Japan. And yeah. obviously they have their own... Or Sword World, yeah. Sword World is, their, is like the most popular sort of domestically produced one, right? Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I found it so fascinating that a media property like Call of Cthulhu, something that a lot of fe- people in the West kind of associate with a very, very terrible human being, H.P. Lovecraft. yeah is so popular and who was terribly xenophobic um, is so popular in Japan. And I yeah. think this might be a good opportunity to kind of dive into why, because it kind yeah, it just, of, it just makes sense to me. It and makes it's sense. like, I don't know if anyone, like there must be some people, but I don't know if HB Lovecraft himself is a part of it in Japan, but like call of Cthulhu in the world and that type of, horror it, it just makes sense can you tell me why so i like i know a little <laughs> bit about how call of cthulhu got really popular in japan i did some research um yeah but i i, I would love to know from your perspective why you think For, it's yeah. super popular so, there not an expert not my area of study just stuff that i really like but uh it's um it's almost like Call of Cthulhu didn't change the game or anything. Like the game itself came in and became like a big deal, but the nature of Call of Cthulhu and that world and the type of fear in it and weird things happening and people losing their minds. It's very akin to Japanese folktales and elements of uh, like Kaidan and Setsuwa, which are, ghost stories and tales of the macabre and they've been around for a very long time so we were talking a little bit before this about just 
how many short stories involve like disembodied things, things. Like, <laughs> disembodied hands doing stuff voices coming from nowhere heads floating around feet sticking through doors really bizarre movement and you know like a general threat from things that should be familiar but aren't and it's i don't know it just makes sense to me that something like call of cthulhu makes sense to people in japan (laughs) kind of like would you say it kind of relates to the fact that sort of the cosmic horror genre has the supernatural and the unknown kind of permeate every aspect of society yeah like people now are super jazzed about yokai and yeah your day but there's elements especially early on when some anime and manga were coming over and people are like it's so damn weird i'm like yeah people of all ages are consuming this in japan this is just like the modern outcome of traditional tales and local religions and folk ways like these are things and you know there's there's stuff like it in europe too but i don't know the everything being full of bizarre monsters that are like supernatural entities that just show up once in a while and right. mess with people like that's you know that's just the standard village <laughs> <laughs> um i i i've been thinking about this a lot and i i know our the twitch chat right now was kind of talking about junji ito and there was kind of a a question about whether or not junji ito's work is the cosmic horror i i personally would say no while aesthetically, there are certain things that you might associate with like cosmic horror. For me, Junjito's work, particularly, I think two of my favorite things that he's he's ever done, um, Uzumaki and the um, the Enigma of Amigara Fault, are both really good examples of how his work is actually about phobias, obsessions. Anxiety, psychological horror, very much psychological horror manifested in sort of that physical body horror that you would expect of of cosmic horror. But but at the root of it all is is the psyche, I think. Yeah, for me, cosmic horror in the way that it's done in a lot of Call of Cthulhu settings to me is partly psychological in that, but it prioritizes paranoia. Yes and alienation and oh boy a lot of japanese media is about alienation while being surrounded by people because you know japan (laughs) (laughs) do you think it do you think it's also because the call of cthulhu can be say adapted to a variety of time periods whereas like D &D, with especially with the way it's marketed is like this is a fantasy game told in a fantasy world any power fantasy as well yeah um, it's hard to do and horror D&D skews to historical in my mind like right a lot of that type of fantasy is like it's definitely in the past at some point it's not the future like yeah that into the future and you can, and i guess you could do it with <laughs> call of cthulhu and you can examine the past but you can examine the past in a more nuanced way right when you look yeah. at like haunted west harlem unbound 
you have ways of examining historical periods, but from the lens of horror. And cosmic horror and fear of massive entities and whole societies breaking down and being against you. That can happen at any point in time. It can happen at any (laughs) point. And I think also with the added layer of horror as a genre being about social and political Mm -hmm. sort of um, criticisms, I, I think makes it a very versatile genre and making Call of Cthulhu a more versatile game to kind of explore these things. I mean, when I was doing some research about the appeal of Call of Cthulhu in Japan, one thing, there's this interview with a um, somebody, it was on Dicebreaker, and they were interviewing somebody named uh, Masayuki Sakamoto, who has worked on every single Call of Cthulhu Japanese release uh, as a oh, writer yeah. and editor. And they actually brought up a couple of really interesting points um, one of them was that because it is relatively rules light compared to other games like D and D, you could tell more character driven stories in a contemporary mm-hmm. time period, and you can kind of link multiple genre like horror genres with like pulp action, but also with themes of like tragedy and romance in a way that D and D doesn't. Uh, similarly, D and D doesn't actively encourage you to incorporate like uh, emotion and personality into right. into games. Um, and I thought that was really interesting because it made me think about my own work and the kinds of horror work that I like to do. And from a design perspective, I would personally fifth edition wouldn't be the first thing that I would pick. And if somebody right. said, hey, you want to work on this product, I would always lean towards narrative uh, because it's where I would get the most freedom to actually do things. Yeah. Um, and I consulted on some monsters that were, or creatures that were developed, I think for a 5e, like, I don't know, creature book. Right. And... I remember talking to the person who was writing it and trying to figure out a way to appropriately deal with the creature. They wanted to do the Gasha Dokuro. Oh, yeah. And I was just like, all right, so. That's the I'm big skeleton, with, right? That's the yeah. Big skeleton? Okay. The giant skeleton made of many skeletons and, you know, neglected ghost anger, which we can get into. But like. What I found difficult for the D&D side of it was I know they want to develop a way that you beat this thing. But that you, you don't. That you chip away at its HP and use particular things that are more effective. And I'm sitting here going, but that's not how it works. And going back and forth with the writer about how to best like treat this kind of creature where I'm like, here's how it's like talked about like the only thing you can do from these things is hide yeah. <laughs> and wait until the sun comes up and then it'll go away and ho- you hope you never ever run into it again. Or I was like, your best option is to try and get players to appease it and do certain steps to make sure it doesn't come back. You right. can't stand and fight 
I almost said stand and bang because stand and bang. <laughs> <laughs> Too much UFC, but like you, you have to either collect the right materials and do the right things at the right time, or think alternatives. Like, yeah, you can go up against this thing, break it down, it becomes a million bones, and the next night it's just going to reform itself because you didn't take care of the root of the problem. But like me sitting there thinking like how many DMs are going to try and get their players to do this and how many players are going to be like, ah, I see, we must try another tactic that's see, this, not just this is, run into battle. This is where it gets awkward because in our home game... You kind of accidentally, I kind of created, accidentally a created one without knowing. So yeah. in our home game, so um, I had this idea... I wanted to like challenge the party a bit more and we had just finished a really, really dangerous fight <laughs> and yeah. a key NPC had been injured. Uh, so injured that the cleric could not fully heal the wound. It was almost like it was a, a deeply like a divine magical wound in a sense. And yeah. uh, you can't really travel with him. He's screaming all the time, so we can't move. Yes. And <laughs> stealthily. <laughs> And the party is at like four levels of exhaustion. And in fifth edition D and D, that's that's a lot. It's awful. It, it fucking sucks. We're um, at two now. You are two now. Um, but my goal with our last session was to actually introduce you to a group of really sketchy merchants because I knew that our healer, our cleric Kendra, wanted to use um, greater restoration restoration on mm. the npc and typically i am not i'm like you don't need spell components but if it is a very dramatic or high level spell spell components it would have been narratively a narrative yeah. yeah makes sense you can't just pop out that spell so i was like the merchant's going to be perfect because you're not going to immediately be suspicious no and i think we all were. i think you were all were except for maybe kendra yeah, at the beginning, when they're like, we've made food, do you want some? I'm like, absolutely, absolutely not. not. And, Drew, <laughs> and, and Drew was like, I go, I go, I'm taking first watch, and I'm going up in a tree away from all these people. And then yeah. I... I ate some roots that I found in the general <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> and, and I ended up role-playing as this, like, hippie, like, <laughs> yoga crystal wielder with Kedra. Yeah. But my goal was for them to basically... Uh, try to kill the NPC or take one of you hostage. And it ended up in this like really one-sided fight. Yeah. And my intention was for us to basically enter a moment that actually happens really early in the manga Berserk, where Guts, like the main character, fights off all of these skeletons in a forest until daylight. And... So that was my intent for you folks, specifically Drew's character, because Drew's character just very violently kills people um, to basically spill a ton of blood, because I knew you and Drew would do that. And the blood would reawaken this ancient battlefield, and there would be all these skeletons, and it would be this battle of attrition to basically not kill you folks, but to wear down your characters to the point where you were going to have to make different types of narrative decisions. But what I didn't count on was the ability of the party to really like role play the fuck out of like the weapons that you have. 
And one of the players in the party has this magical sword made from a dragon tooth. And it's called the Decree of Rain. And it's one of these divine, like five divine weapons in my my homebrew world. And it allows you to create this like, it lets you cast these really high level magic spells, even if you're not a magic user. But it slowly turns you into a dragon. And Mark has the weapon and he creates this swirling vortex of mud in the form of a swirling dragon sucking in all of these bandits. And I was like, fuck, that is such a cool idea. (laughs) And, but because your character had also gone off and I was like, I'm going to dig for tubers. um, I was like, I went to to sleep in the woods because I didn't trust the bandits. Yeah, but because you had done that, I was like, this is a great opportunity to drop a hint about what could potentially happen. And I had mentioned that you had discovered some of these old bronze weapons indicating, you know, that this was an ancient battlefield. And so, you know, about that and all of the enemies ended up getting sucked into this whirlpool and it unearthed all of these bronze swords and spears. And as they were being sucked into the ground and bones, they were basically being ripped apart by all of those ancient weapons forming this small deep pool of like crimson mud in the form of like a a spiraled dragon yeah and i was like this is such a cool if anyone ever came across our campsite again they'd be like oh what the fuck what the fuck (laughs) i was like how do i take this to the next level because i did not plan for that i planned for like this big battle of attrition i had all these like virtual tokens ready to go and i was like well you know what it's just gonna they're all gonna come together in one big thing and i'm gonna make you folks run and then literally oh, after right. the session, you were like, hey, Daniel, do you know about this, like, this as creature? As soon as you told me, it was an old battlefield. There was a lot of bones. Blood was spilled on the ground, and then things started shaking. I'm like, is is this intentionally a gashadokuro? I had like, never what? heard of that. <laughs> and I had never heard of it. And I was like, well, this is neat, and let's work that into it. So now in the story, that's what this is. And your character is from a fantasy Japan, so you have cultural knowledge of this. Yeah. And in our session, literally in two days, we're going to have to deal with this. And I mean, spoilers, but I think it's important to be uh, transparent with, with, you know, players and also because we're talking on the podcast right now. Uh, My plan is for it to actually, because I did a lot of research. Yeah, you can't kill it. But my idea is like, if you wear it down and if you do enough damage to it, it makes it vulnerable enough that you could basically run further away it does have to reassemble but yeah like, or plead with it i already knew that it wasn't going to be an actual gashadokuro because it was daylight when yeah it's coming out and like that's the opposite like it's only out at night and it's freakishly stealthy yeah <laughs> which <laughs> i don't know at least for now because because it was yeah. it was like coming out of the ground and it, i would i would yeah. chalk that up to the character's exhaustion but yeah, I mean, the daylight certainly makes it not the same thing. And this is where I can take liberties. Um, mm-hmm. But I want to inherently save that part of the, I guess this is retroactively cultural um, inspiration for it. Yeah. And kind of make it into something that you can't kill. And yeah. I really like the idea of the party or somebody having to appease the fact that these are dead soldiers. Yeah. And Mark's character is an ex-general. That's his. That was his his whole story. So I wonder if Mark will do something. Uh, we'll see. I know Mark doesn't listen to Agents Represent, so this is not a spoiler for Mark. Um, yeah. But 
back to sort of like China and Japan and horror, I think it's really interesting to kind of look at Call of Cthulhu and how popular it is because of the human element mm. to it. And I think that's really neat because when you look at Japanese TTRPG products like Table Talk, um, when, I mean, the only one that I know of that has been officially translated to English is Shinobigami. Right. Uh, that's the only one that I've seen that I have. I've always like, you look at Sword World and I'm like, oh, those covers are so beautiful. Like I would play that in, I would buy that in an instant if if they were published in English. Yeah, I have them in Japanese and every once in a while I go in and poke away at a little chunk of translation, but like my Japanese isn't that great. It takes me a while. <laughs> yeah, and I would never be able to go in and, and do that myself. So I'm like, oh, I would I would love to play that game. But when I look at Shinobigami and based on the conversations I've had with you about the TTRPG sort of experience in Japan, that table talk, the idea of taking gameplay and turning it into something that you can read in the manual mm. is something that yeah. I find deeply interesting because of yeah. how people think about horror and social political criticism, but also like the deeply personal element of horror and how very much learning a game is turned into a personal experience and learning about another person's attempt to tell a story which is what I thought was really cool about Shinobigami because literally the first 25% of the book is just literally you reading a transcribed yeah. actual play. Yeah. And yeah, those get published all the time as standalone books. So like if you ever do want Japanese TTRPGs, just make sure it's the actual game book and not like a, a replay. Is, is that what they call it? Like a replay? I don't remember. It has a very specific term, but it is just an actual play that's been transcribed and sold as a book to read for fun. I I, I feel like that would be something really cool to try to to try to make. Do it in like short story format instead of an actual play. Make it something that you could read. Um, I yeah. wonder how that would do here. Um, well, like collectively, we could probably write out our long term campaign. Our long term campaign. I think honestly, I think it would be really cool. Yeah. Um, to, to finish up on the like Call of Cthulhu in Japan thing, one thing mm -hmm. I learned was that when Call of Cthulhu was getting really popular, it, <laughs> and the whole idea of these replays or, or, you know, like literally actual plays that are meant to be read was that people were actually hacking dating sim engines and using vocaloids to oh, make yeah. cosmic horror actual plays to basically consume yeah. and it was so interesting um yeah and and in reading that i was like this is just a completely different market um on top of that the because, genre there is just so different yeah i like the the voice actor stuff is not that far off from like you could get manga and other things where they've recorded professional voice actors doing all of the voices and telling the stories or doing side stories like, it's just, yeah, those are products that exist. <laughs> yeah, I, I think it's super cool. Um, I, uh, Anything I, that you can consume on a train for several hours, like, is ultimately. Yeah, and I was going to say, like, the consumer experience has got to be pretty different, too. Like, if you're commuting a lot or if, you know, I know a lot of folks, and I know this is 
this is not the Japanese experience, but we talked about themes of like isolation and being able to consume these mm -hmm. experiences if you are somebody who is well, not around yeah. a lot of people, right? Concerns about especially young people becoming super isolated have been a topic in Japan for some time. And like, that's the origin story of Pokemon. Like, the guy who developed Pokemon really? did so because he saw a lot of young kids that weren't really going outside and exploring and meeting each other. And mm. that's why there were there are always some Pokemon that you can only get by trading or interacting with other people. Right. He and wanted people to have to go out and do that. That's also why there was never a user manual or guide, because the only way you could learn about different Pokemon is to talk to other people who had played it and gotten different oh. things than you. So that it was fully built in there in the early nineties. And something right. he had been dreaming about in the eighties was to try to break down some of the isolation that especially young people were feeling. That is, that's absolutely it's, fascinating. It's super cool. And that's also like really he was obsessed cool. with bugs. And so he wanted to try and get kids to experience the going out and searching for bugs and identifying species and their right. properties. Like, yeah, it's, it's a cool story. <laughs> right, and now, I, now I'm just thinking about like other aspects of later Pokemon games, like or even technology on like the 3DS, where you can like there's literally um, the what's what's the it's the pass when you walk past somebody. And, oh yeah. Um, or like getting steps in on literally getting steps in on Animal Crossing New Leaf on like the 3DS. I never thought about it yep. that way. I don't know if that's yeah. like the intention, but with Pokemon, that's like, that's really interesting. It's really cool. And it's a lot of those games are also supposed to be like low risk exploration. Right. So teaching kids that they can try and fail, but still keep going. And that's why so much of Pokemon is just like, oh, I didn't make it, but I'll do better next time. Oh, I, like, yeah. <laughs> you see that in just like Shonen yeah. in general too, right? Yeah. Oh, that, that's interesting. That's yeah. really that's It's a really cool story. And I bring it up a lot because Pokemon is often used as an example of that multimedia franchise that a lot of people see as like the core of soft power and Japanese pop culture influence. Mm. Soft power is a concept that really pisses me off, but this is not the time to be talking about that. Okay. But in general... The, it's gotten wrapped up in this, especially in the West, this idea that Japan is targeting Western audiences and trying to influence people. Oh, God. But the thing is, like, Pokemon, I just told you, like, the creator himself, yeah. why he created this game. And <laughs> for Japanese thought it kids. would be popular. It was, it was for Japanese kids between ages 8 and 14. They never thought it would <laughs> actually be good. He developed it himself. And did most of the work before even trying to sell it to uh, the company he was working for. So, like... That's wild. Yeah. And the concept that, just because it's super popular now and highly merchandised, like, the whole intention versus outcomes thing is always super interesting to me. Hmm. But, yeah, it's a cool story. Like, Who, who would have thought that during this episode we would bring up Pokemon? <laughs> Pokemon, yeah. And talking well, about talking horror. about isolation. <laughs> true, true. I, I think that that's just really cool and something that I, I never yeah. never would have thought of. Now yeah. I think we've we've done we've put in a lot of work in kind of like contextualizing where we're coming from when it talk when we're talking about like horror in Asia 
And mm-hmm. I know that if we're going to talk about like things you can get inspired by, like leading up to this, we're like, we're just going to talk about ghosts the entire time. And That's like, a, yeah. When you want to talk about like Japan and China, especially, it's just like horror. Oh, well, it's going to be ghosts. ghosts. It's going to be spirits. <laughs> it's either going to be that or like demons, but demons. And um, I guess if you look at like 80s cinema, you talk about like Jiangshu and stuff like that. Yeah. Well, like for the most part, the really popular stuff is it's all about spirits. It's all about, yeah. unless you're like, obviously, if we go back to Junji Ito talking about like the mundane. But even then, yeah. like in our conversation yesterday when we were playing video games, it was like you could still link this to the mundane because we were like, what is the root of all of this fascination with the spirit world, with ghosts, with the supernatural? And we're not even talking about that in necessarily the antagonistic sense, too, because when we're talking about ghosts, yeah. we're not just talking about things that are meant to scare you and meant to embody the baseline of horror that we set of like, hey, you know, scaring, revolting, shocking you. Yeah. We're just talking about things that are present everywhere and can be horrific. There are a lot of obviously like famous haunted places in China that people go to and try to flock to. But in general, I think yesterday when we were talking about China and the fascination with ghosts, because there are there are ghosts for everything. There's like a ghost of somebody who drowned, a ghost of somebody who died, but they were hungry, a, a ghost of there are so many different ghosts. And yeah. I mean, one of them I, I put in the adventure I wrote for Unbreakable Volume 1. I like drowned ghosts. Yeah. Um, but I think yesterday we were talking about like, well, what what is at the root of this? And obviously there will always be a certain degree of speculation when we talk about the origins of a very ambiguous and uh, a very ambiguous theme that appears in China's literary and cultural history, given that China's got like a 5,000 year plus history. Um, and I think- Emphasis on the plus. On the pl- <laughs> emphasis on the plus, because in terms of like, I mean, we, we could spend an entire episode just talking about the, the tradition of scholarship in China and why that yeah. influences how we're speaking right now. Um, but I think yesterday we were talking about ancestor worship and yeah. particularly during that was the, my best guess yeah during the chinese bronze age um yeah it's also a good best guess because it's also when we first have decipherable writing and i say decipherable yeah. writing because there are other forms of writing that have come before it but scholars have not been able to understand what it is but we were talking mm-hmm. about the shang dynasty and sort of the 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 late sort of like neolithic with like the rise of like the early do and the early gang culture um, mm-hmm. also with like the Longshan culture where they have those like still the most beautiful pottery I've ever seen in my life. The eggshell black burnished Longshan pottery. Eggshell uh, pottery. For the audience, these are funerary vessels and they are burnished black. So they, they look like matte black ceramics, but they are they literally like jet, like it, that stone. Yeah. yeah. And they are literally, these vessels are as thin as eggshells, but they are ornate, beautiful, quite and, big. and big and highly complex in how they are made. They are, they are hollow. They have sort of recessed and cut out areas. It is, if you ever run into an argument with somebody who says, oh, everybody in the past is 
And there is no so, such thing as sophistication in the past, especially before the industrial age or before people were using lots of metals, point them straight to that pottery. Yeah. And that whole like, oh, they couldn't have done that. They couldn't have done it that. the past. It's like, well, they did. So well, they did. Here, take a look. Out. Yeah. Yeah, they are very cool. And if you are curious, you could always look, search uh, Longshan's L-O-N-G-S-H-A-N and then pottery. And that should be the first thing that you see. Beautiful black pottery. But at that time, uh, ancestor worship was a an incredibly important aspect of early dynastic Chinese and early state-level Chinese society that we have documents of. Obviously, ancestor worship goes far, far beyond that. Um, but we just have to guess. And I would say, like, around the world, it probably precedes, but you see it in most parts of the world really show up in the material culture mm-hmm. during early agriculture phases where people start settling down, creating territories, planting stuff, creating permanent homes, you start to see cemeteries and house burials and other forms of interacting with the dead that really solidify that there is some form of ancestor or dead people concepts that are getting codified, like really standardized and practiced across wide regions. Yeah. And, you know, during the Shang Dynasty, and like the early Bronze Age in China, we see these incredible bronze vessels and they would essentially host these big feasts. And this is, again, a lot of the sort of, there are different schools of thought on this, but in terms of like Western schools of thought, particularly from a, a, a white scholar named Anne Underhill, who is deeply influential in, in the study of this particular yeah. type of material culture. She is one of the experts. She's a big cheese, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I Oh, I just got a, a a memory of being roasted. Flashback, yeah. I just I got met a, her once. Yeah, she didn't roast me, but another um, another Chinese scholar roasted me really hard. Uh, Li Liu roasted me really bad. <laughs> oh yeah, she roasts everyone. She's uh, she she looked at. I was I was sitting next to her at dinner. This is a side thing. She's Li Liu is another very very influential Chinese archaeologist, and I was sitting next to her at a dinner. It, we were in China, and she looks to me and she said, "Oh." That's how you use chopsticks. That explains a lot. And then just turned back and continued eating. And I was like, what the fuck? What? <laughs> and, uh, and, and I had just met her. And yeah. it was like, damn, I can't say, I can't say anything. Um, yeah. but, anyway, <laughs> but anyways, th- these bronze vessels were used to basically show off your social and spiritual power to other members of society. And you would do so by basically aggrandizing and collecting these bronze vessels and putting on these feasts. But for your ancestors, it was almost like if you want to like really simplify it, it was like, oh, I know people, but they ghosts. Yeah. And but also like this is where you start seeing real specific lists of things that you are expected and required to do for someone after they die. Ritual. like Usually in order to keep them from coming back mad as hell. Yeah, you have to appease the spirits. Yeah, not um, even to get good things out of them, mostly <laughs> just to so they leave you alone. <laughs> yeah, and 
you see this like all over the world in terms of people who are either trying to like doing preventative ritual. And I don't mm-hmm. say as in like ritual magic, like preventative yeah. sort of like cultural ritual, like practice, um, yeah. as well as preventative practice to stop people from aggrandizing power like this. Mm-hmm. For me, I think one of the most interesting ones is actually not from from Asia, um, but from the in, in specific indigenous cultures in North America, the like the Wendigo. And the oh, right. idea of the Wendigo is linked to like aggrandizing yeah. like social medicinal power um, and stopping yeah. people from doing it, almost like uh, cautionary tales. And it's interesting seeing the way the Wendigo is portrayed in, in media now compared to yeah. traditional depictions of it. But like flashing lights everywhere. No one should ever incorporate Wendigo or their versions yes. into media. That is a huge faux pas. So Just disrespectful. Don't do it. They're they're scary and they're really interesting, but no, you're not allowed. Just don't it's, do it. <laughs> yeah. It, if you want to, I'm going to dig up a couple of papers on this and I'll, I'll yeah. share it with our patrons. Um, but it is deeply linked to like, cultural practice particularly around like medicine and spirituality and it is more than just like offensively appropriative it's like deeply disrespectful um to do that especially in the way that you see it in popular media like you see the wendigo pop up in like an early season of like supernatural and it's done so poorly i was thinking about that (laughs) Uh, it's also it's also brought up in uh in sort of the Mike Mignola's sort of Hellboy universe, there's a mm. Wendigo character. Yeah. Um, but it's also not done in a way that really is respectful of the source material. Um, I find that one is one of the biggest hit and misses in, in sort of his work there. Um, and I'm glad they did not use that in Guillermo del Toro's yeah. movies. Um, but that said, like, you know, we've been talking about, like where these sorts of stories come from, like the ideas of ghosts, the themes like in China, yeah. like social so power, like, isolation. We could keep talking about ghosts. Yeah. Because <laughs> <laughs> so much of like why I would think that the the ancestor element to a lot of East Asian cultures in particular lends itself to a lot of ghost stories is because of that whole vengeful spirit or like extreme emotion leading to supernatural stuff. Yeah. yeah. So in Japan, most of the ghosts are the biggest, most well-known ones are individuals who died in particular ways or had bad things happen to them. And so they become ghosts. The line between ghosts and Oni are also pretty slim because sometimes they can turn into Oni, but that's, that's complicated. Same thing but, with like like oni and yokai. Oni are a type of yokai, but they're like they're also kind of different. I consider them a separate thing. Yeah, and I, and I know some people do, and I yeah. actually um, uh, recommended you for like a cultural consultation because I did a thing, and I was like, oh, you should talk to Emma. I know the answer to this, but Emma will give you a more comprehensive answer. Right. Um, that comes from a place of far greater authority than I. I have um, things to say, but yeah. Emma has things to say, and you should you should pay Emma to say those things to you. Um, but yeah, <laughs> I, I think it's really complex, uh, horror in Asia, and there are a lot of differences 
and what I would love to do is kind of talk about how Chinese, because we've talked a lot about Chinese and like Japanese horror have really mm. influenced our work, like our sensibilities, the things right. we love, the games we play, the stories we tell. I have my my massive desensitization to a lot of this stuff. <laughs> I am also super desensitized. I also think from school, um, from school oh, and, yeah. and the things that we've seen. Um, yeah. I am extremely desensitized to that sort of stuff. Yeah. Um, but for me, I I picked a couple of things. Uh, I first wanted to talk about one work of horror, the the one that I the only one that I've actually independently released. And it's a game called Wicked Congregation. So oh, yeah. in 2021, uh, when like there, there was like mass sort of anti-Asian crime, I mean, we're still seeing it all over North America and Europe right now. Um, but oh, for me, a way of coping with that was actually like designing a game. And so I wrote a hack of like a wretched and alone hack uh, called Wicked Congregation. And it was inspired by a couple of things. It was inspired by um, the world of Control, the video game. It was inspired by Resident Evil, particularly sort of like post-Resident Evil 4 Resident Evil, when there was more like government bureaucracy and all these different organizations involved, heavily inspired by like Delta Green and the BPRD, the Bureau of Paranormal Research, Paranormal Research and Defense from Hellboy. And I had been working on a game called um, the Bureau of Paranatural Survey. And I had written this like whole backstory in this whole universe about these um, basically doors opening up all around the world, connecting scholars at different points in history. And this sort of otherworldly force encouraging these scholars to, to share their knowledge and experience with one another in a room that would basically unify them under a single language. And from these sorts of cross-cultural collaborations throughout time emerged this agency that would combat the supernatural. Something I would never really publish, but something that I was like, I wanted to just play, right? Whether it would be like my own system or use it for like Delta Green. And essentially what happened was I... Agatha got me into solo RPGs. And so I ended up writing this game called Wicked Congregation. And the game is very subtly about how I feel when I go to small towns. And oh, yeah. Yeah, when I go to small towns, because, you know, the way that I dress, the way that I look. Um, and like, I am very familiar. Yeah. With <laughs> and like my, and my own experiences yeah. that I won't talk about on the podcast, but I'll tell you later, Emma, but like, um, the game is about like a team, a task force of Bureau of Paranatural Survey agents who go into a small mountain town in the United States to infiltrate a cult. And this cult has gotten this sort of paranormal supernatural artifact and they plan on weaponizing it and so this task force retrieves the artifact but everyone except one person is killed brutally murdered by the cult and you are the surviving member and this artifact talks to you 
And so the game is about you being hunted. And in my mind, it's about like you, the sort of marginalized person being hunted by white people. And uh, so I wrote that game and it was like such a great experience writing it. Um, and it's one of the indie projects that I've done that I am most proud of because I feel like it looks, A, it looks beautiful. And yeah. B, it, I think I worked really hard on writing it. Um, and that one was deeply inspired by like my sort of like Western sort of experiences. Um, in terms of sort of like my, my sort of interactions with like Chinese culture, there are two works that have been incredibly influential. Um, one has obviously been like um, the Shanghai Jing, sort of the um, the classics of like mountains and seas. This is an English translation, heavily annotated by me. Um, but it has worked its way into uh, a number of the things that I've worked on. This is not a work of horror, which is why it's really important for us to kind of talk about like and lay a baseline for horror. This is a book about, it's kind of like a, it's a piece of Chinese classical literature that functions as like, a historical like monster manual and guide to mythical geography. Uh, but there are elements to it about, it's essentially about the strange and the weird, which are elements of horror, but it's not called horror in the sense that we are talking about. But um, there is one creature from here that actually recently made its way into something that I worked on. And uh, it's, it's the Ao Yin. So on the uh, on the Pathfinder Second Edition book Dark Archive, uh, I wrote a case about um, called the Sounds of Violence, and the Sounds of Violence is essentially about a a magical horn that a mysterious shepherd has, and the shepherd walks into town, blows the horn, and everybody basically goes buck wild and starts killing and eating each other. And the uh, but that was all based on like two sentences from the classics of mountains and seas. And in it, uh, the alien is basically described as, so this is the English translation, uh, but it's generally right. Um, 400, uh, 420 Li further west stands three dangerous mountain where the three green birds dwell. So the Li is a historical unit of Chinese measurements. It's roughly like half a kilometer. Um, so like a third of a mile. Uh, this mountain is 100 li in circumference. On its heights dwells a beast whose form resembles an ox, but with a body for, uh, with a white body, four horns, and hair like the straw used in rain capes. It's called the Ao Yin, and it's a man-eater. And that is literally it. Um, so in my mind, I'm like, okay, so it's like a polyserate ox. It's got four horns. It's got straw-like fur. That's really fucking strange. And it, it's a carnivore. So in my mind, I was like, oh, how, this is really neat. And there's not a lot of information on it. So I can take some liberties with it. So I thought, well, it's a, it's a man-eater. It's a, can of, it, like, it's a carnivore. But what if the alien could be used to make other people carnivores like it? And so this through a ritual, you could turn its horn into a tool to incite violence. Um, and I was really proud of that because he's like, hey, I've taken a piece of classical sort of Chinese literature, honoring its roots, and then kind of incorporating it into something where Western audiences can see it. I also put the Ao Yin in our home game, but I never actually made use of that plot thread. 
Um, when did a little, it was the ox on the the ship. Right? It was the ox on the ship. Yeah, and my yeah. my intent was for the party to come across a ship where everyone has been killed and there's like blood everywhere, and essentially this an alien was being traded by sort of foreign <laughs> sort of like trappers who had no idea what it was. And its blood is actually in the story was supposed to incite all this violence as well as the horn because the ritual involves blood. Um, but I was going to actually potentially have this alien kind of go loose when the party had reached this major sort of trading hub on on the shores of, of my sort of homebrew world and for there to be this big sort of like outbreak. Uh, but I decided against going that route. Um, at the time, I was really into that uh, Korean uh, historical thriller uh, Kingdom on Netflix. Oh, yeah. Um, and so I opted against doing that because um, I didn't want to just do that story and have it kind of derail the main story. Um, but I really think it was a good exercise for me to kind of look at classical Chinese literature and see where I can take the ideas of these strange creatures and incorporate them into my work. And the Shanghai Jing is something that is fairly accessible. You could find a translated English copy at a bookstore for like $20. Um, and I think it's really neat. Like you can open it up to any page and you could find something pretty odd. Like I just opened it up right now and there's uh, a section on the flexible people. The land of the flexible people is located east of the land of the one-eyed people. The people have one hand and one foot. Their knees are reversed and their feet bend upward. According to another version, their land is called the land of the Liu Li people, and the people's feet bend backwards instead of bending upwards. Uh, and there is, of course, art for it. And the art is hilarious. Um, but it's it's like it's very evocative to kind of think of this stuff. Um, but in searching through Chinese literature, I found another more direct source of inspiration. Uh, and this one is actually available for free everywhere. Um, there is a work of literature called Strange Tales from a Chinese Studio. It was published in 1740, so during the Qing Dynasty, uh, and was written by an author, a very famous author called uh, named Pu Songling. And while not technically horror, it is a collection of sort of strange and anomalous fictional short stories. And I have been looking to use a couple of them in my work for the longest time and haven't had the chance to. And they are really wild. So there is one called The Mysterious Head. And it's just literally just a paragraph because um, it's written in a, it's in a traditional Chinese literary format. And it's talking about how in... Peking, which is now obviously Beijing, um, these traders were lodging at an inn and they were occupying a room that was divided from an adjoining apartment by a partition of boards. And there was a piece of the board missing, like these, these wooden planks, and leaving um, an opening that you could look through. And when these traders, um, they're framed as like men, uh, were lodging at this inn, a girl's head appears in the opening, kind of like, you know, like Jack Nicholson, the classic Jack Nicholson. Like, hey. Um, hey. Um, but this, this, this girl's head appears in the opening 
And the girl is like beautiful and her hair is like well kept. And um, if you think about like cultural tradition, it would be like long, silky, the way it would be described. And as her head appears, an arm reaches out of this thing. And it looks like a beautiful young woman is actually trying to force herself through this tiny opening like a cat would force itself mm. through a small opening. And the traders were basically caught off guard. They were shocked. They thought this was, you know, a devil, a demon, some sort of spirit. And they basically try to grab the head and the arms and the arm, the, the, and you would actually, uh, a lot of folks might actually think of the ring with this actually, mm. and try to grab the arm, which is described to be as like pale as jade. Uh, a lot of people, um, and for context, not all jade is green. Um, there is a particular type of jade called nephrite that it tends to be paler in color. Um, also, historically, jade is often referred to anything that is uh, of a certain visual quality, not necessarily a mineralogical one, uh, just for context. Now, <laughs> now, as the head and the arm withdraw, it appears elsewhere on the walls. And these dudes start freaking out and then they just start stabbing this disembodied head that's appearing on the walls. And it just keeps reappearing and reappearing and there's limbs and stuff. And essentially, these people freak out. The room is covered in blood and they run away to tell the proprietor of the inn. They report it to the authorities and the traders are arrested. And this case is like this mystery and these people are jailed and this head, this mysterious head that they had was basically buried. And that's the entire story. It is fascinating. It is weird. Um, and it doesn't have the kind of resolution that you would expect of sort of like a traditional Western story because a traditional Western story is usually like, okay, so there was this weird happening and then they discovered that it was because of this thing. And so they did the ritual or they did the thing yeah, and, and then it's over and everybody's happy or everybody dies because they failed. But this one is literally, there's, there is no resolution. You don't know what happens. Um, and I thought that was so interesting. There was one where people were essentially walking through a village and body parts fall from the sky. But they're not like bloody body parts. Think of them as yeah. like mannequin pieces and they fall from the sky. And they're finding all these parts of a person and they just keep disappearing. And it's and that's the story. It's so odd. Or there's one of like um this like priest. And a lot of the work in Strange Tales from a Chinese studio are about sort of like a political and sort of societal criticism. And it was actually about um, priests, uh, a, a, Taoist, a Taoist priest who seeks refuge in a Buddhist monastery. Mm. And at night, he hears strange noises and sees the Buddhist priest who's like basically drenched in blood like can carry. And was just walking around being creepy and literally yeah. climbing upon like a, a Buddhist like altar, you know, like a big figure 
you know those ones that sometimes have the the cutout in the back and yeah. literally just hugging the buddha covered in blood and, and that's the story yeah and when a he lot goes- of japanese stories are like that too especially kaidan they're super short they're like rapid fire shock and entertainment a yeah. lot of the time and for a lot of them there are probably moral stories to them but some of that gets lost over time so it might demonstrate something about well, like buddhist philosophy but for us it's just like what is happening there are a lot where there's like oh go ahead a lot of japanese stories involve a person just slowly deteriorating like they're not they don't sleep anymore they may or may not complain about something coming into their room they're just always exhausted can't eat and usually find out that something's been coming at night and draining them of their life force in some way. Ooh. It's often like small kids or little old people that just like scuttle away. And they end up being variations on like these mountain goblins or demons that often turn out to be giant spiders. There's one where it's oh, really? a, it's like a young boy is caught in the room of the person who's dying. They chase it into the mountains. They find an old woman up there. So it's like a shapeshifter. Mm-hmm. Old woman turns into a massive spider. They cut her stomach open and all of these human skulls fall out. Like hundreds of human skulls come out of her guts. Whoa. And then like, that's the story. <laughs> oh shit. <laughs> <laughs> and they're like, and then this happened. And the that's end. it. <laughs> <laughs> the end. Yeah. 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 Damn, that that makes me yeah. think of the one of the initial stories in uh, Demon Slayer because there was a spider demon. Yeah. Oh, that was that was weird. Giant spiders are fairly common. Why and is they usually shape shift into things? Probably because they're creepy. Okay, I guess. <laughs> and there, there's my bias coming in. I'd be like, oh, I think spiders are real cool. Yeah. I was like, for for full context, but like audience, I'm. I was definitely the type of kid where people are like, oh, look at that spider. And I'm, I'm the one to pick it up. Oh, um, yeah. As an adult, I, my knowledge tells me not to do that uh, yeah. in certain areas. But um, I usually point and say, look at the size of that thing. And then I go nowhere near it. <laughs> <laughs> hey, look at that. Um, ah, there it is. That, right. one's, that one's wild. There was, um, I've been rereading Uzumaki. Um, yeah. By Junji Ito. And there is one story, and I used it for like the background of the stream overlay. Uh, it is about a small town that is basically descending into chaos as people become obsessed with or manipulated by the this sort of you can say almost cosmic power of this spiral, right? Uzumaki. Oh, and, Uzumaki. Yeah. Yeah, and one of the stories in each there are all these little short stories. There's like twenty of them, and they're all about a different very relatable aspect of the human condition there are some mm-hmm. that are about obsession there are some that are about like obsession with one's craft anxiety fears and one particular one is about the obsession with attention and the one there is a main character and she is kind of pre- present in every single story and one day she kind of shows up to school and she and this other classmate are talking about how like people want to get attention and people want to be looked at. And she's like, Oh, I don't want to. 
And then one day people start paying more attention to her. Like, oh, what did you do to her hair? And she's like, I haven't done anything. And then the back of her hair begins forming these really aggressive curls. Mm. And every time she tries to cut off the hair because she doesn't want the attention, the hair strangles her. Mm. Uh, but not quite like, you know, there's that, that yokai, the futakuchiona, the one with that mouth at the back of the head with the little oh, yeah. hair. Not quite yeah. like that. But the hair will not let her cut it. And it slowly begins growing into this like almost like this spiral, almost like a fungal growth, like you know, like cordyceps, how a cordyceps yeah. grows out of a, like an insect. And her one classmate who was talking to her about how people like to get attention is like, I thought you said you don't like attention. I don't like that you're getting more attention like me. And then she becomes consumed by this. And then her hair starts doing this thing. And then they basically show up to school. And they're both wasting away, but their hair is growing and growing and growing. And then their yeah. hair starts fighting and trying to kill each other. And yeah. the and basically the story ends with uh, not the main character, but the other uh, girl basically withering away and grasping a pa- like a, a power line pole as her hair wraps around it as she her body literally fades away. And it is a very weird and unsettling story because if you think about it, I mean, in a contemporary context, because Uzumaki was written, well, actually started serialization in like 1998. If you think about social media now, you think about it from the context of like, I want to tweet so I can get likes. And how, when we were talking with um, Stefan in a previous episode about like people thriving off of negativity and wanting negativity, yeah. If you think about this particular story from Uzumaki, it, from a modern perspective on social media, it's very deeply unsettling because it's something yeah. that we see now. People putting shit out onto the internet to try to get anger and rage because they want that and it consumes them. Um, and I think that's what honestly makes Junji Ito one of my favorite horror writers of all time. Because everything, even though his stories are old, are still deeply unsettling. Um, well, yeah. When it's elements of human experience and human condition, it's real easy for that to be timeless. Yeah, right? And, and there's another one. Um, so I, I love Uzumaki. And I think Gyo is another really good one. Uh, Gyo is about like this like death stench. Um. But my favorite part of Gyo is actually a short story that is contained within it. And the short story is called The Enigma of Amigara Fault. And it makes me, I, I have a physical reaction every time I think about it or read it. It, it is literally about these faults appearing on, a, on, like, a, a, on like a beach. And within this sort of stratified view of the rock, there are these like human outlines. If people like discover, oh, this one fits me and people are drawn to them and basically Mm. like force themselves into the rock and it's so unsettling, but it's also just so interesting that you don't need to take demons. You don't need to have jump scares. You don't have to have like, like serial killers, or I think of like Saw, that kind of horror I like have zero interest in. Yeah. But this one is like something so deeply human and something that 
is really difficult to kind of interact with if you look at traditional TTRPGs, which again explains why Call of Cthulhu is so popular. Yeah. Uh, but I want to know, like, what are some of your favorites? Because I know I would, before we were like going to do this recording, I had mentioned that I mostly want to talk about books. And I know you had been like talking, wanted to talk about like film and stuff. I watch a lot of movies. I don't really read a lot of horror. But here's the thing, like, it's real hard to tell if horror is good or what people would consider to be good. Subjective. But also horror is one of those genres like you were talking about before. Horror around the world does not get a lot of money. And so production value and what they do <laughs> with those movies, it's very variable. But over the last few years, I've gone on a real tear of every time Netflix has a decent looking Asian or even just non-English, non-American based horror, like I'm all over it. <laughs> okay. Okay. And a lot of them are about hauntings, ghosts right. and paranormal kind of stuff for a lot of reasons, but I really like them because a lot of the times there's a, a cultural way to handle something and there are ways to deal with it. I find a lot of Western ones end up being like survival of the individual, like the protagonist. It's all about the protagonist surviving and doing their best and beating the thing, which is like an overgeneralization. Yeah, but it's but, it's it's enough of an it's a frequent enough of an occurrence that is certainly a trope yeah. in the Western horror genre. And I really like a lot of the Asian stuff because it's more of a mystery. It's almost like a mystery and a crime show blended up with horror aspects and hauntings and scary stuff. Like it's almost procedural in a lot of ways. Yeah. <laughs> and I don't know. I just wrote down some of the ones that I, have yeah i'd love to hear it seen i don't remember all of them to be honest i sometimes pick them and i'm just like horror movie put it on do i pay attention the whole time maybe not we'll see. i remember really liking eerie it's a filipino movie set in like a girl's school and things are going wild so i don't want to spoiler it <laughs> i've never seen that one so like what about it kind of like stood out to you? Um, because I can, when you think of like, oh, it's a horror movie that takes place in like a school. I'm like, oh, there are lots of things like that. But what it is was about a private school, private girls school. Oh, okay. It's the pacing of it. I find really good. Uh, it's partly broadly a story about abuse, both colonial and intergenerational. And oh. yeah, but it's presented in a lot of ways as a ghost story. And then you start to see more and more aspects of it. And then not everything works out. And something that I love about Asian storytelling in general and horror movies is that not everything always works out perfectly fine. Yeah. The resolution's often ambiguous or negative. <laughs> yeah. And you're like, oh, no, that's not what I wanted. But like, man, 
it, it was a good one. Um, I liked the Third Eye movies. They are Indonesian. I've never they're heard of any of these. They're a little goofy at times. Uh, but they're both kind of cool. It's about the concept of having a third eye. So people who are more connected to the other, like it's not just the living world. There's also another world beside it. And so like mediums and all of that are naturally more connected to the other world. Right. And it's about a girl who grew up being able to see ghosts and all of these things. But then as she got older, she shut that down but then with the death of her parents, her third eye, quote unquote, reopens and she begin, she starts getting bombarded by these spirits again. Oh, almost like you 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 lose your tolerance to it. Yeah. Or she physically tried to shut it down. I think there might have been an element of someone helping her close oh. it as well at some point when she was a teenager because she was getting tired of it. But there are two movies. They are a connected story, but yeah. Oh, that sounds really cool. And this is all, all on Netflix? It was, yeah. I don't know if it all is now. I recently watched Incantation. That's Taiwanese. Okay. It's it's a big old blend of like... It's found footage style. And it's a combination of like Blair Witch and The Exorcist. Okay, cool. I, for me... Found- but it takes like Buddhist elements. Yeah. Right. Found footage movies are always hit and miss for me. I Me too. The one This one uh, changes it up a lot. It's not like shaky body cam kind of stuff. It's mo- it's a 2021 or 22, so it's like like we are now. She's talking on her webcam recording stuff or mm. stuff taken with smartphones. Uh it's videos found on YouTube and and security cameras in all of the places. Right. Oh, yeah. my, my favorite found footage film is um, I love the uh, Wreck series, uh, Spanish zombie movies. Oh, uh, they remade. They did a terrible remake uh, and they made a movie called Quarantine um, set in an airport. Even just by the name, I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> That's a ba- it's a bad movie, but it's essentially a, um, it's a found footage film. And it is about a like a early morning tv sort of like programming host for a news channel and she is basically tasked with following a like a firefighting unit and the firefighters get called to this apartment and she's like oh cool excitement it's like four in the morning five in the morning and she's following them and they get locked in the apartment and shit fucking goes down it's like a zombie movie but with a really cool twist and I won't spoil it because it's a good one. Yeah. And I, and I, I mean, Emma, you know this about me. I love zombie movies. You love zombies. I have a collection of zombie movies, like DVDs, like stuff like you can't find. Like I have yeah. boxes and boxes and boxes of them. And See, I regularly have dreams that involve zombies, but I don't watch a lot of zombie movies. Oh, interesting. I watch a lot of ghosts and like demons and stuff, which don't show up in my dreams for some reason. <laughs> <laughs> I I don't remember a lot of my dreams. The last, I'll tell them, it, this is, in hindsight, it's very funny, but at the time it like deeply unsettled me. <laughs> yeah. But um, the second Wreck movie, so Wreck 2, is one of the few zombie movies that genuinely frightened me. And I highly recommend looking for it if you can find it. It's probably on Shudder or something like that. Um, but I had a dream. 
Um, I never dream about zombies. I never, I don't generally dream about like horror stuff. Um, I suffer from uh, sleep paralysis. Uh, it happens to me uh, at least once a month, which really fucking sucks. Um, but I, unrelated to sleep paralysis, I had a dream where I was surviving amongst these ruined buildings and everything leading up to it, because I remember it so vividly, indicated, oh, this is like a fallout or Resident Evil type of scenario. But no, in this dream, I had a gun and I was fucking being chased by ceramics. <laughs> and I was being chased by pots. And, yeah. and thinking about it now, the pots are very much like the living pots, like Alexander in Elden Ring. But I was literally, yeah. I had a gun and I was shooting at these pots and they were shattering. And I had this dream in 2013 when I was finishing up my master's. And, that makes sense. and it was just, it was super stressful. <laughs> um, yeah. It was super I have, stressful. I have two more things. Okay. Like, when you say horror, I think of, but like kind of to get back into how I feel like a lot of the East Asian horror is blending with like procedural cop and mystery yeah, yeah. kind of stuff. I don't remember if this is a movie or a show, but it was called Spaha the Sixth Finger. I've never heard of this. And it's like deeply tied to Buddhist and huh. probably some other things. But there are cops involved. There's a cult involved. A lot of missing kids and some really messed up stuff that I just simply was not expecting. And so... It's long, it's one of those slow burn looming dread, and then things just keep getting weirder and weirder kind of right. movies. So if you're into a slow burn that just escalates rapidly, like this would be one for you. So you like the the procedural stuff. Did you did you like um like the haunting of Bly Manor and like Midnight Mass? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, Rahul Kohli. I loved all of those. Yeah, like Rahul Kohli. Like dream guest on Asians represent. Love. Dream but, guest. I do like, it can't be too slow in plotting, but I do like something that's got a bit of tension to it, and it's not just all straight up, like, grab and scream kind of stuff. Yeah, you want, Which, I don't want yeah. a cheap scare. I want to, no. I want to be scared in a way that's much deeper than just, like, my yeah. reflexes. And I find a lot of the Asian ones that I've watched are like that. And a few of the, the, some of the European stuff as well. So like not Asian, but I think about the show all the time. It was called Chiron. It's Italian. Okay. I don't know it. It's a good one. You've watched it follows, right? Oh, I love it follows. That movie it is follows awesome. Is terrifying in the slowest and most quiet way. Totally possible. a movie about an STD. Yeah, definitely. Well, Kiron is got the same kind of vibe as It Follows, except it is the small town where if you hear the church bell toll, that okay. means that there is your exact double who is a version of you without any of your fears or anxieties, and it's coming to kill you. Okay, so... One of you has to survive because there could only be one. So, and like, it's, it's a fucked up show. You gotta, send me the name for that because I don't even know how to spell that. Um, uh, C-U-R-O-N. Okay, 
C-U-R-O-N. Okay, perfect. And it's kind of like quiet and slow build. It's a TV series. Okay, so like, if you like that, I have a recommendation. Um, so there is a manga series. It's all wrapped up, but now they've adapted it to an anime with a similar premise called Summertime Rendering. Have you heard of it? No, okay. I don't think so. So Summertime Rendering is a really cool premise. Um, it's about this 17-year-old kid who went to school in Tokyo and then is returning to the island that he grew up with. It's like in like um, southern Japan. And mm. uh, for the funeral of his adopted sister who drowned. Uh, when he shows up, he's basically informed by some of his close friends that she didn't drown, that she was murdered and there's a cover-up. And the entire series is essentially about this guy getting killed over and over again and discovering a conspiracy where the there are these shadow creatures that are literally murdering people on the island mm-hmm. and replacing them. And it is it's exactly what like that's that popped up into my head. Yeah. And I think it is very well done. Like I read the manga yeah. and I was like deeply obsessed with the manga. My only criticism of it is it's the unnecessary fan service at times. Oh yeah. Um, and it's not, yeah, it grabs you in that uncanny valley kind of way where you imagine yourself in that situation too. If, yeah, a alternate version of you or your friends and family, it's very much like it follows, and it's it's really it's really good. And like the, the fan service is, um, uh, it, it is infrequent, it is infrequent, yeah. and and it's not the type of fan service you would it's not like really awful and aggressive fan service it's just kind of like uh, it doesn't need to be there um now i did see a comment uh, like a, a post in the twitch chat about tresse i want to save that one i want to save that one because i want to talk about that with like i want i want i think other people should be talking about that not us yeah. i watched it i thought it was cool um but again i don't know much about that stuff and so yeah. I don't think I could really do it justice. So I want to make sure I like save that. But that that is something that will be talked about on Asians Rep when we do another thing on horror. Um, I was gonna say one other thing, and I completely forgot what I was going to recommend. Um, <laughs> Just so many things. Yeah. I'm also remembering plots to movies, but not oh what it's called. <laughs> oh, I remember because you were talking about um, liking sort of procedural sort of like fiction with that sort of horror sort of blend. Um, I I do like the the figuring it out instead of just surviving. It's the how do we resolve this kind of stuff. There is so much. Um, I mean, the Delta Green fiction. I think you would really uh, enjoy. Mm. Um, but there is another one like SCP, like that, this, this, you know, that big media project that everybody contributes to with like weird creatures and bureaucracy and stuff. But there mm. is an incredible fan short film called SCP overlord. And it is so fucking good. And it also oh. ends with a very ambiguous sort of resolution. And it's about this SCP task force. That goes to able like stop this cult that's that's in a cabin in like a remote cabin. Um, I won't spoil it. It's like 20, 30 minutes long. Really w- well made. But if you sort of like that sort of military proceduralism combined with weird fiction and cosmic horror, 
SCP yeah. Overlord is really good. No, no, I don't know if there's any agents I don't know involved. military is the... It, it's not really like, it's like they got guns and they go in and it's, yeah. it's not like... I like the slow unfolding of... Yeah, uh, and that's what this is. And I th- information. Yeah. I think you would like that from SCP Overlord. It's very it's it's like they're dressed, they got like tactical gear and stuff. Right. But it's like very they're much like, like, Oh no, ghosts. Yeah. <laughs> but this one is like they are aware of the supernatural and they're trying to contain it. Right. And, and they're just so poorly equipped to do so. It's really yeah. well done. It's so good. Everybody should watch it. Um and I know they're doing a follow up to it. Um oh, yeah. but yeah, SCP Overlord. Another one I would really recommend, but we're talking about Asian stuff, so yeah. that is not there was, one. There was a military one that I watched. It was uh, twenty three fifty nine, like the time. Oh, it okay. Was, it's uh, a Singaporean production. I remember it's in the military, and there's ghosts and stuff involved, but I don't entirely remember how oh. it all works out. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes. <laughs> I, I like that because it's like, oh, it it, it is um, giving you a little bit of um, of agency over what you think the ending will be like. Um, or you can go back and watch it again. <laughs> or you can go back and watch it. Um, I think I, it was partly comedic, which was why I wasn't 100% paying oh, attention. Okay. Which is not its fault or a problem. And I have watched comedic horror, but I'm less likely to get drawn into it. Right. Because, like, I watched all of The Guest as well, which is another Korean, uh, very religious-based supernatural right. show. But it involves, like, folk traditions and Christianity and a demon-type thing that isn't necessarily Christian, is highly Korean. Okay. And, like, a priest, a cop, and... Like a guy who should have trained to be a, a folk medicine person, but didn't. He is okay. essentially an untrained medium. They're running around trying to hunt down this really dangerous entity. I think it's like two seasons long. And I watched all of it, but it tries to balance the seriousness with goofiness. But like, it's what it's one worth seeing, too, if huh. you want something that's longer form. A little bit goofier. There was a um, I I made the mistake of like trying to get um, Sarah, my like my partner, to learn about Jiangshu, and I was like, oh, we're, let's watch like Chinese vampire movies, and I forget which one we were watching, um, but it was like one of those eighties Hong Kong cinema ones, and she couldn't get past the first like ten minutes because it was that it was like it was goofy and funny. And she was like, what is this? Um, <laughs> what's happening? Like, what's going on? And it, it yeah, so we we haven't revisited Jiangshu uh, yet. Now, it wouldn't this be... This is a good season for it. It, it is, right? Um, now, it wouldn't be Asians represented. It wouldn't be a, like a Daniel Emma episode if we didn't go back to archaeology. Yeah. And I would love to <laughs> end the episode by talking about... Um, Something from Asian archaeology, doesn't have to be Japanese either, or Chinese archaeology, that you think would serve as very interesting horror influence or a strange occurrence um, in someone's story. 
uh, whether it be D&D, whether it be a scene, whether it be an entire sort of mystery adventure, if somebody who's playing Call of Cthulhu. I've got one. Um, and I'll start talking, so I, I'll give you some time. Because- I have some vague ideas. Well, like, I automatically go to Jamon's stuff, but I'll think a bit while you talk. <laughs> okay, so mine, is, and I, I know you're aware of it too, mine is Telbrack. So okay, yeah. Telbrack is a really interesting archaeological site for those of you who aren't familiar with Syrian archaeology. Um, so Telbrack is a city in Syria, and it was basically like one of the largest cities of like the upper Mesopotamia. Um, and there is a very famous temple within Telbrack. And if you go on like Google Images and you search Tell, like T-E-L-L, Tell is a kind of um, artificial mound that was formed out of like successive occupations. Um, Tell and then B-R-A-K, Tell Brack, two words, and then search I Temple. And they found a temple in this ancient Syrian, in this ancient city in Syria that was basically full of these really strange looking stone figurines that have big fucking eyes they're huge yeah they're huge and they look they're like funny like pillar people with these big white eyes that are big white eyes yeah (laughs) yeah and they're like they've got this like they've got this like almost like rectangular body and then like a hey arnold head and they're not small with these eyes and they have like altars covered with eyes like walls adorned with figurines and eyes and there's literally eyes everywhere looking at you and it is one of those like archaeological mysteries that I have been enthralled with since, well, we took that class together in grad school yeah. uh, and learned it about it. It was a relatively recent uncovering. Like, yeah. There's been stuff like it before, but like that was next level. Yeah, it was next <laughs> level. And then if you live in Toronto and you go to like the Royal Ontario Museum, uh, they have some of the figurines on display from Telbrack there on the third floor. Um, there's another one. There's another site in syria but it's the one that has the we'll talk about on asians rep but it's got the pillars with the holes in it you remember that one china i don't it oh, was it's in syria i think yeah, it was in syria and it was um there were basically all these scholars and they were fighting over the phallic imagery of the site yeah but that one's less horrible. well there's not syria but there's uh in Turkey, there's Gobekli Tepe, and that's the one with all of the carved pillars, and there's a lot going on there. That you one is another... Thinking, uh, I might be thinking of Gobekli Tepe. No, there was another one, but there was another site. Maybe it was in Turkey, but it wasn't Gobekli Tepe. There was another one, like a, one of like the lesser sites. I wouldn't be surprised, yeah. I'm going to have to look it up again. Um, Wild yeah. stuff all over the place. Wild stuff all over the place, but, but for me... The one that I would recommend using for as your source of inspiration is Telbrack and that uh, the eye figurines and the idols, idols, the, the looking, the yeah, idols. Uh-huh. Uh, yes, I see what you did there. <laughs> <laughs> the idols of Telbrack be a really cool mystery, and you can very loosely incorporate that into pretty much any sort of campaign setting. It's literally just a temple covered with eyes. Yeah, um, but eye imagery is very important to like southwest asian culture yeah Mm -hmm. yeah because i'm thinking of the um 
what's it called? Oh my goodness, my brain. I want to say Neolithic B stuff in in Jordan. Okay. I think. It's been a while. I might be messing this up, but there is a there was for a while a practice of removing the skulls off of people who had been buried. So all of the graves were marked where their head was so that they could go back in and easily remove the skull. And then they would fill the eyes with like, yeah, big staring shell type eyes. Oh, um, plaster the skulls. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, and then no, no. decorate the skulls and then do what with them? I don't know. They appear to have been collected up and displayed in common areas like plazas for a while. And then they get reburied somewhere else. There is an entire, um, it's a, it's a settlement. It's, um, oh, oh my God. I know exactly. Cause they would, they would plaster. You know the what I'm talking about? At, yeah. at, like Jericho. Like the Jericho, Jericho skulls. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then they have these big like seashells for eyes. Yeah. It's crazy. <laughs> but then, but then they would only take the, um, the, the, they don't take the mandible. They no, would just take the calvarium. Yeah. Um, yeah. Jericho was, I didn't even, I hadn't thought about that in a really long time, but they had buried them in the walls too. Yeah. And like, yeah. Super common One, to bury people in house floors and walls in some places. And if folks are doing research and looking at archaeological burial practices, one that, because we talked about the Wendigo, one that I will say to never include in your fiction, for it would also be highly disrespectful, is um, like ossuary burials mm. um, from like North America. Yeah. Um, do not include those. Um, no. There are a, uh, they're like a, a, one of many indigenous burial practices where uh, they would do essentially sometimes they would build scaffolds and they would put the um, the bodies on the scaffolds where they would um, then wait for the bones. They would take the bones and then bury them in uh, communal burial pits. Um, uh, do not include those in your fiction. That would be very disrespectful. Yeah. Um, but tell Brack <laughs> or the Jericho yeah. skulls are, are and our in general. Like if you want to use things from other cultures, but East Asian ones in particular, it's, you really got to look into all of the stuff that goes with it. Like the, like I said, for the movies that I like, a lot of the responses to things are deeply cultural, like mm -hmm. not just even superstition, but it's, built into the cosmology of how you deal with this world and others and other people around you, the living and the dead. And so that's fun because you can work with that as solutions within game settings, but also you got to try and keep it appropriate. Like yeah, you got to keep <laughs> it respectful. Look into how people would say you would deal with that stuff. Totally. And now for more archeological stuff, I don't know. I'm drawing a blank. All I could really think of is for Honestly, the time period that I work on, it's really rare to find human remains because the soil in Japan is so acidic that they just don't survive. So during the period that I worked on, they used to make giant clay pots, shove a person in and put another clay pot on top and bury it. But then it wouldn't take that long for their, for it just to be two giant empty pots. Yeah. And we assume that there used to be a person in there. Sometimes we find outlines of where human matter might have been, but that's kind of horrific in a way. Like, yeah, like the total dissolving of 
of a person. You could play with how much time that takes and or you could even do a setting is. Or you could even do a mystery of one that doesn't decompose. Yeah. Something that defies convention. Right, I think would be interesting. Um, another one for me, if I were if I were to think about like East Asia, then if we're going that way, is like one. There are like it is like commonly known that there are um, human remains inside the Great Wall of China. Oh yeah, and that alone is something that you could like think about uh, in a very macabre sort of way. Um, there are human remains in a lot of a lot of big monumental architecture and a lot of historic yeah. settings and who was it uh tessica i think did a brief story like manga story about uh switching to terracotta human offerings instead of just oh real human offerings I gotta look that up it's it's not for sure supported although you do see archaeologically, especially with even the uh, Shi uh, Huangdi, like yeah. the, the terracotta warriors. Or his chamber, his burial chamber. Yeah, his burial chamber is wild, but Jackie Chan already made a movie about it and you can't touch that ever again. But like <laughs> <laughs> the massive amount of actual human remains that are buried nearby is yep. astounding. But there is also through time a decrease in human sacrifice and an increase in human shaped objects being put into burials in Mm -hmm. places like japan and china and so tezuka's idea was that these terracotta ones were supposed to replace the actual human burials but he made it so that people were being buried alive with a dead emperor and how they came to change their minds was that essentially just created these massive haunted mounds of people screaming. So they're like, that's not very real people anymore. Junji <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, Ito uh, in Uzumaki, there's a there's a, one of the chapters in Uzumaki is about ceramics that have been imbued with human mm. life. Um, yeah, and it's 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 grisly if you are like a if you've ever made or know about how pottery is made. Um, yeah, it, that that's actually another good one in Izumaki. It's honestly, it's worth, it's very worth reading. Um, I can't think of any other archaeology one. Telbrack is always my like go to because it's so freaking weird. Well, um, like archaeology it, in general, there's a reason why there are so many archaeologists and ancient artifacts and things like that in horror settings, yeah. and it is the unknown, the mysterious. And easily turns into like magical or supernatural. So artifacts in general can become this like icon of something's freaking weird here. So there is. What were you going to say? So there is an art. It just reminded me of like, oh, the cringe of watching this movie. So there is a really, really terrible archaeology horror movie that if you want to laugh, if you know anything about archaeology or you just have any degree of common sense. This movie will yeah. fucking infuriate you. It's called The Pyramid. And that's not even the one I was thinking. I think there's like two or three that I've seen on like what is that? It's called <laughs> The Pyramid. And it's it's like a found footage yeah. pseudo found footage horror film about this archaeological excavation and they find a three-sided pyramid. And they're like, ooh, a three-sided pyramid. And they're like, we need to get in there. Oh no, our funding's running out. We gotta do something. 
gotta go now in the dead of night we without gotta know. proper equipment but and nobody case, knowing where like, we are. <laughs> we gotta go in the dead of night. But yeah. first, we'll send this really expensive NASA drone type thing that we, like rover thing we have in. Something k- killed the rover. We have to go retrieve it because it was really expensive. And then they go into the, they go into the, <laughs> they go to the pyramid. And then I won't, I won't spoil it, but it's so silly. Uh, um, actually, uh, I don't know. Do you want, should I spoil it? Uh, I don't know I don't if people care. are going to watch. It's just funny. Literally. That you're like this terrible archaeology. It, literally. Like, they several. like go in to get this like drone and they get trapped in the pyramid and they get slowly picked off. By, of course. by cats. Hell yeah. And there's Mummified like cats. No, they're just they're just feral cats that have been trapped inside this pyramid. And then there's this <laughs> avatar of Anubis who isn't even a cat. Um no, and jackal some, some people will also reference. say that Anubis isn't even a jackal. Some people might even say that Anubis is a wolf. Um based oh. on yeah, there there's some studies that indicate that Anubis and Duamutaf, who is another jackal or ca- canid headed uh, god in Egyptian mythology. It may may not actually just be jackals. There are are other options, but there are two of them, Duamutef and uh, Anubis. But yeah, there's like Anubis is in there and it's so fucking awful. I saw in the chat though, um, uh, Temporal Insanity says, for some reason, I was expecting Daniel to say The Mummy or National Treasure. First of all, those are both fantastic movies. I'm talking about. (laughs) Um, I love The Mummy. Brendan Fraser is an icon. and oh Rachel Weiss is also an icon. <laughs> uh, National Treasure, incredible movie. Also the sequel, incredible movie. Um, but yeah, the worst archaeology horror movie I have ever seen is The Pyramid. You're making me think of this one. If you're not good with horror movies, this one might mess with you. As above, so below. Why do I know that it's one? It's about people spelunking under Paris into catacombs. Ooh. But it's like the border between worlds and things get really weird. Oh, that's cool. I like <laughs> yeah. that stuff. Um the last what one made me think of that. The last one that I will recommend um is not necessarily horror, but if you're an archaeologist, it's fucking scary. Is a uh, BBC TV show called The Dig. Oh yeah. <laughs> and they tried to make a, basically a procedural drama about a European archaeological dig, and it's so fucking awful. It's like <laughs> it's like they tried to do to archaeology what CSI did to the practice yeah. of forensics, and it's they so try to make bad. it sexy. It's so <laughs> bad. Um, even if you're not an archaeologist, it's a cringe show. Um, but that said, you know what isn't cringe? Our patrons. Um, I had a really good time doing this episode. Uh, I'm glad we got to do it, Emma. Uh, I know yeah. that Jeremy was going to join us, but Jeremy is traveling right now. Uh, yeah. I hope all is well, Jeremy, and that you're enjoying your vacation. Um, I look forward to you returning so we can continue our Pathfinder game, uh, which is currently... Which involves that ridiculous horn you freaking designed. <laughs> yeah, that ridiculous horn and makes things awful. <laughs> uh, my bad. Uh <laughs> Uh, but we have a lot of people to thank because we can do episodes like this. And in the future, we can, we have some big announcements for Asians represented 2023. All the parties have been spoken to. We are coming back with a lot more content and that is all possible because of our amazing patrons. Um, a shout out to our, um, I used the patron list from last month because I know we didn't do, uh, an episode on the first Friday of this month. So, uh, shout out to our guardians of the realm, Brooke, 
uh, Jeremy, who's also on vacation, uh, Daisy, Arjun, Justin, uh, Wayan, um, Kavi, Matt, uh, Namex, happy birthday, because I know it was your birthday recently, uh, and Jay. And then, of course, our most honorable, most honorable Metal Weave Games. Shout out to uh, Andreas. Uh, Andreas, congratulations on your good news. Um, shout out to Liana. Valorous Games. Liana is going to be doing a lot more with Agents Represent in the new year, and we're going to talk about that at, I think, the finale. I think that's what I want to do for the finale. It's kind of like, these are our plans, and this is why we're going to do these things. Um, so, shout out to uh, the most honorable, Dungeon Glitch slash Matt. Um, always fighting the good fight on Twitter. And the most honorable Times 2 Epic Impulse. And the most honorable Bob C. Thank you folks for all of your support and everyone else who is a uh, a supporter of the Asians Represent podcast, past and present supporter and future supporters. Um, we really appreciate what you've done for the show. You've been able to keep the show alive and help me yeah. not burn out making this show and trying to produce educational content. And I am super grateful for that. Um, that said, if you are a uh, um, interested in, you know, horror stuff and you want notes, you want these recommendations, show notes as usual are going to be available on our Patreon. I'm also going to put a link there so that if you want to get a copy of Wicked Congregation, you can get it for 50% off. Um, just for Asians represent patrons. So I'll share that there. Um, but and that's... one day I will finish the thing I'm writing, I promise. <laughs> yeah, one day you will. Um, and I look forward to the world marveling at what that is. Um, it's full of ghosts. Just full so of you, spooky. you open those pages, they're full of ghosts. Full of ghosts. Um, <laughs> And I, I think we'll have to do more horror stuff in the future. I think this was a really awesome conversation. And I think we um, should do more of them. I know we want to talk more yeah. about uh, Southeast Asia. And I would, I honestly, you know what I would love to learn about? Kind of a dream topic. I would love to learn more about the horror genre, but in South Asia. I really oh, yeah. want to know what how horror is portrayed and what the horror genre is like there. Um, I, uh, I'm very curious because the last time we learned about sort of South Asian film, when we had KP on, we talked about Bao Bali kind of blew my mind. So yeah. I, I've and really... like, I've tried watching some Indian, uh, I'm going to say ghost movies. I was like, oh, is this going to be a horror movie? No, it was a romance. There just happened to be some ghosts involved. <laughs> yeah. Like, I want to know, like, what, what is the horror horror genre like there? And, I mean, this is just an excuse for me to, to get recommendations on what I should really, yeah. like, read or watch. Um, yeah. So I know that we've got a lot of stuff in the future. We're 100% going to do uh, a Southeast Asian uh, horror episode. I've already talked to Pam about that. Uh, yes. And we're going to try to, now that Pam's in Canada, we're going to try to um, do some stuff and bring on some experts. Um, and then I want to do a South Asian one for my own selfish <laughs> uh, thirst for knowledge. Um, I'm for it. But that's I it. I see it too. Emma, thank you for, for joining me for this episode. This was episode 62 of Asians Represent. We have, oh, yeah. we've put out a lot more um, of the podcast in 62 episodes because there were like, there was some weird numbering, my fault. Um, we have put out like more than a hundred episodes of the podcast, but uh, well, numerically we started doing all of these different series and like, 
what are you gonna do <laughs> what are you gonna do but that said emma thank you so much for joining me yeah. honestly i came out of this with a ton of recommendations i'm real happy i'm gonna look these up um and maybe have a spooky halloween weekend next i have week. a bunch more if you need to oh yeah send them, send them my way i'll put them in the show notes i'll, I'll list everything that you've recommended in the show notes uh, right. as well as share a couple of academic resources um, one, a very interesting thesis called Contemporary Chinese Horror Films, Genre, Censorship, and Market, published last year as a dissertation, and it's publicly available, so I'll share that there. Oh, we did not go over patron questions. Um, I think we kind of touched, touched on, on all of them, but there was one. Um, okay. Uh, we answered both of Kat's questions. Kat talked about like ghosts, asked about ghosts and recommendations. Um, Van asked a question about, I'm kind of curious about Asian superstitions. My dad told oh, yeah. me that whistling at night brings out snakes, uh, but he could have just said that to get me to stop whistling as a kid. I wonder if those superstitions have broader stories that they come from. Um, I actually had in our show notes put out a reference to this comedy uh, video made by the legendary Wong Fu Productions about Asian yeah. superstitions and like fan death, like, there are oh, a lot yeah. fan death was like a big thing in Korea, but it was also a big thing for like my family. It's like, don't put the fan on at night or you'll suffocate. Yeah. You'll suffocate or don't go to bed with wet hair. Uh, yeah. Or like um, there are superstitions of like a really common one is if you go to a Chinese restaurant and a person at your table basically takes their chopsticks and sticks it in the bowl of rice. That is a huge. It's, uh, like, it's bad in Japan too. It's a huge like cultural and social faux pas to do something like that and it's yeah. it's it said like oh that's bad luck and all that but the root it of references that death is references yeah. death because it looks like you putting incense into a, a yeah. bowl at like a funeral um a lot of like superstitions that i grew up with mostly were around like numerology and stuff yeah like, numbers number are four big, like, four yeah <laughs> and, and that sort of stuff but like uh, 88 being lucky there's double happiness the funny thing about superstitions is no one probably really knows why they developed anymore, but there's so many of them. And they are so, so deeply embedded in like our like cultural yeah. subconscious. Um, I'll end this with a, a quote from the, uh, the, the man himself, Michael Gary Scott. Uh, I'm not superstitious. I'm just a little stitious. Just a little uh, stitious. Just a little stitious. Something I want. I guess we're not done. <laughs> I guess we're not done. Never mind. Damn it. There was something I ending. wanted to say where movies that I can't get behind and things that I think you, if you want to develop CTRBG oh, or other yes. stories that involve East Asian, Asian, or other people's cultures, aspects of horror and all of that, I would recommend staying away from the outsider coming in. And being bombarded by folk traditions and foreign ghosts, because that gets done a lot. Mm -hmm. As soon as it's like four good looking white middle class people showing up in a small Asian town, going to go visit old temples that the locals say you shouldn't go to. Like, I'm like, mm, mm -hmm. this is going mm -hmm. <laughs> to be annoying. <laughs> mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So uh like. Try to stay away from that as much yeah, they're, as possible. They're, they're, they're getting what's coming to them. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Anyways, yeah. that's it. For that's me. it. <laughs> Thanks, everyone. And uh, we'll see you next time uh, for yeah. a, not an episode on horror. Something a little bit more uh, deep and emotional. Bye, everyone. Bye. Bye.